1: This is the Alien UFO podcast, episode 92, and I'm your host, Simon Bound. My mission here at the Alien UFO podcast is to investigate all things that are part of the wider UFO phenomena. I'm looking at UFO sightings, alien abduction, historic cases and other related events. Every Thursday, I release an episode of the Past Lives podcast called Paranormal Stories, and that has UFO cases as well as information on evidence of an afterlife if you want to hear the extended version of this interview, which is an extra 20 minutes, you'll need to join the Patreon campaign, where there are now more than 80 episodes in the back catalogue. For $5 a month you get an extended episode every week, and for $2 a month you get an extended episode every month. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review and be sure to subscribe. This week I'm talking to Philip Mantle about his new book, Beyond Reasonable Doubt, The Pascagoula Alien Abduction. Philip is the former Director of Investigations for the British UFO Research Association and former MUFON representative for England. Philip has written articles and features for numerous publications around the world and has been both editor and assistant editor of High Street UFO Publications. He is the founder of Flying Disc Press. Hi Philip, thanks a lot for coming back to the podcast. Oh my pleasure Simon, nice to speak to you. So we're going to talk about your book. It's called Beyond Reasonable Doubt, The Pascagoula Alien Abduction. Uh, This was co-written, wasn't it?
2: Yes, I've I've co-authored it with Dr. Irina Scott. Uh, She's in Ohio in the United States. It's all about, obviously, the Pascagoula
1: abduction, but this goes into a lot more detail as uh, with other witnesses and landing marks and all sorts of other things. But for people who don't know... Could you just give us an overview of what happened with Calvin and Charles?
2: Yeah, I mean Calvin Parker uh, was almost nineteen. He lived in a place near Laurel in Mississippi. Just got engaged, and it was due to get married in November of 1973. And he was working long hours in his job, you know. And uh, his when his fiance said, you know, it'd be nice if you could get a you know a regular job nine to five, so I can see more of you. So his father said, why don't you give Charlie Hickson a call? He lives over by Pascagoula. He's a foreman in the shipyard. They'll maybe get you a job. Now, there's there's almost a couple hundred miles distance between them here. So Calvin phones him. He says, yeah, there's, there's a vacancy, actually. So he sets him up with a job. The idea would be that Calvin would lodge with Charlie Monday to Friday and and then go home on a weekend and then see how things went. So he went over on Wednesday, you know, October the 10th. Following day, October the 11th, 1973, was his first day at work in the shipyard. He was, I said, 18, almost 19. Charlie, you know, a family friend, he was 42, uh, a military veteran, served in the army and fought in Korea. So Calvin spent the day, you know, know, as a welder in the shipyard. he, He didn't mind manual work. Just bought a brand new car as well. So, you know, everything looked good. he got his life planned, you know, uh, fiance, get married, buy a house, have a steady job, children, grandchildren, etc. cetera. Driving home that night, obviously Calvin didn't know the area. Charlie said to him, You fancy going fishing tonight? It was a, a, a you know, both guys loved fishing. So Calvin couldn't resist. He said, Yeah, sure. So they picked up some some fishing tackle from Charlie's home. They drove off, picked, bought some bait en route, and Charlie's directing him. And it was just off what's known as Highway 90 in Pasigula. Not an out-of-the-way spot at all, Simon. You know, big big motorway bridge goes over the river. and um, they're, they're driving up to it, and there's a, a no-entry sign, and Calvin comments on this. And Charlie says, don't pay it any mind. Don't take no notice. So they park the car, get the tackle up, start fishing. And the first spot they're fishing is, in, you know, there's a load of uh, insects. So they move away and they, they find an old pier that's from an old abandoned shipyard. So they set up on this old wooden pier, you know, rod in the, in the water. And at some point, these these blue lights emerge from behind them. that You can see out across the water. Calvin thinks, oh, no, it's the police. I knew we shouldn't have ignored that no-stop, no-entry sign. We're going to spend the night in jail for trespassing. So both gentlemen turn around, and of course, it's not the police. There is an object shaped like a a rugby ball descending. Uh, It stops a couple of feet above the ground. There's two big lights on one end. An opening appears. And and the light gets even stronger out of this opening. They have to shield their eyes from it. And these three humanoid creatures literally float out of it. They didn't touch the ground. They were about 18 inches above the ground. Flew towards uh, Calvin and Charlie. They were described as being about five foot tall. They had no necks. Instead of ears, they got pointed protrusion out the side and one out of the front. Uh, longer arms with mitten or pincer-like appendages. Their legs never moved, they were solid. Uh, And their skin, that's what it was described as being grey, but wrinkly, a bit like that of an elephant skin. Two got hold of a Charlie, he felt some kind of prick in his forearm, one got hold of Calvin, and the fear had gone, but they were actually paralysed. Both men couldn't move. The only thing they could move was their eyes. They were then floated to this opening. Calvin went to the left as they went in, Charlie to the right. Calvin said he was placed on a transparent table or bed or whatever you want to call it. Um, This big thing, this big ugly creature, he called it, stood to one side. And um, he felt this presence behind him. And then a, a creature that looked very much like a female appeared. And um, the only real difference was that she had very long middle fingers on her hands. One of these she actually put put in Calvin's mouth and up into his nasal cavity. which <clears throat> She didn't like because it hurt. And uh, at some point, this this object from the ceiling dropped down, about the size of a pack of cards. Calvin said it was, and it went around him, around his head, and he could hear this clicking noise. And um, it shot back up. Um, they removed his lower clothing and his, his shoes and his socks. And he says, they stuck something in my foot underneath and it hurt. And he felt as if he's, he felt literally as if the blood was being drained out of him. I mean, the guy is terrified. He's dressed and the paralysis <clears throat> that he had wears off for a, for a second. And he grabbed this female and, and pushed her head against the, the wall of this thing. She pointed to the big big creature, and it got older, Calvin. It was frozen again. And the next thing he you knows he's back outside on the pier. A similar thing happened to Charlie, but although he didn't see any female creature. And the next thing Calvin remembers is, is Charlie shouting at him, are you all right? Are you all right, son? Are you all right? And uh, the, the, he staggers to his feet. They turn around, and this thing is it's gone in a flash. So they stagger back to the car. Bear in mind this is a brand new car. When when Charlie opens the passenger door, all the glass falls out. Calvin jumps in. It, it, it wouldn't start. He it, it said it took him at least 20 attempts to get the car to start. Their intention at this point is not to tell anybody. You know, Calvin's worried that his, his future father-in-law will think he's nuts. They won't let him marry his his, his sweetheart, you know? So they're driving on, heading home, and it was actually Charlie who had a change of heart. He said, we, we've got to tell somebody. What if these things come back and do this to somebody else? What if it's an invasion? So Calvin agrees on on on, on one condition. He'll say, I, I'll admit to seeing the, the UFO and the creatures, but at that point I passed out. I don't remember anything else. So Charlie says, "Okay, I'll I'll tell I'll tell them the story of what happened on board." So they pull in at a little shop that has a payphone. Remember, this is 1973. There's no mobile phones. Now, Charlie, having a military background, he phones the air force base, which is nearby. It's called Keesler, and they say, "We're not in the UFO business anymore. Phone the local authorities." So they they phone the the, the, the police. They say, "Where are you?" Okay, stay there. We'll send a car out. So they sent a patrol car out. First thing they did was give them a sobriety uh, test. They passed that. They were then escorted into town uh, to Jackson County Sheriff's Department under the uh, command of Sheriff Fred Diamond. Both gentlemen were interviewed separately. And and to to be honest, they weren't believed. Uh, They were then put in a room together and there was a table next to him, and the deputy opened the drawer and said, I'm just going for some coffee, guys. I'll you know, I'll be back in a few minutes. Unbeknown to Charlie and Calvin, what he'd done in this desk, he'd set a, a tape recorder going, and they are going to tape their conversation without them knowing. He came back five or six minutes later, goes to the drawer, takes something out. They were unaware of what it was. They go and play it back, thinking that Charlie and Calvin are going to be having a laugh and a joke, but they're not. You know, Calvin is going bananas, you know, and and Charlie's saying, my God, my God, son, you know, uh, I always knew there were other people in, in, in this universe. And, uh, you know, so then the, the 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 sheriff and his deputies, their attitude towards them changed. They tended to believe that something happened to these two guys. And they said, well, you, you know, you're free to go. And they say to the sheriff, look, please don't tell anybody. You know, said, no. so the next morning, you know, they go home, and the next morning they get up to go to work. They drive into the shipyard and they notice there's a few more cars there than normal. And I think it was the gateman, you know, said, uh, the boss wants to see you. So they go upstairs to the boss's office and he said, you know, what the hell have you two been up to? And he says, the place has gone bananas. Got journalists phoning from here, there and everywhere. What's, what's been going on? So they tell their boss what's happened. Uh, Their boss says, well, in the mean, just in the short term, you can use the the company's uh, lawyer, you know, if you need him. Um, The sheriff turned up again, and and they blamed the sheriff for letting the story out. And and he said, it wasn't me. And right right to this day, nobody knows how the story got out, Simon. So they were sent to the Singing River Hospital for a checkup. Everything was OK. Um, and somebody said, well, what about radiation? So they were then driven to Keesler Air Force Base, bearing in mind it was Keesler they phoned the night before and had been given the brush off. And they were checked with a Geiger counter. There was no radiation. So, but the, um, the officers in charge said, well, why don't you sit down, gents, and tell us what happened last night? So they did. Uh, and what is great, we have a transcript of the, the Sheriff's Department's recording of what happened that night in, in the office, the so-called secret tape. At Kiesler Air Force Base, Simon, they didn't use a tape recorder. They actually had the use of a stenographer. So she or he recorded every word of the conversation, um, and we have that complete transcript as well. Both are in the book. Along with all the, the officers' names, there's nothing redacted or anything like that, And um, off they went. And and then the following day, believe it or not, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, a close encounter's fame, and another gentleman by the name of Dr. James Harder uh, appeared on the scene. Uh, And they interviewed them, they listened to the secret tape. Uh, When Hynek went home, I think it was a day or two later, he held a press conference and said, you know, these two gentlemen are legitimate. They've had an experience, period. You know, we don't know what. And, and you know, then the chase was on to get this story. And uh, Calvin hung around for a couple of days, but he didn't want to talk to anybody if he could help it. Charlie, on the other hand, he, he he was, you know, more than willing to speak and try and protect his young friend. He would take it all. So Calvin eventually disappeared back home, which was 200 miles away. Um, shortly after, he ended up in hospital with a bit of a, a nervous condition. and And that's how it remained, you know. Charlie would do all the talking, would appear on you know chat shows. Occasionally, Calvin would, at the behest of Charlie, but he didn't want to. And for those listening tonight, Simon, I don't, I don't know if they remember the 1980s TV series, The Hulk. The Hulk's alter ego was Dr. David Banner. And he, of course, he was hounded by a journalist. And every time the journalist caught up, he'd moved to a different town. That's what Calvin did in real life, quite literally. He got married, he moved on. Uh, you know, had a family, uh, and at one point he even used a false name, so that people wouldn't track him down. And uh, it wasn't until 2018 when I I caught up with him. Charlie had died in 2011, that he finally told his story in full for the first time. And it was you know like a, a relief to him. The trauma had been relief, uh, uh, being, uh, was a relief to him. And he you know that was the basis of the story that 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 most people, including myself, knew. And, um, you know, that's it in a nutshell for for those that are not aware, Simon.
1: And one of the unique things about this is the description of the ETs. I've uh, read so many of them over the years and talked to people. I've never heard a description like this of those with the way their skin was, the way that sort of nose thing was. Their hands were
2: like kind of claws. Yeah, I mean it is unique. The whole case is unique, and that's just one part of it, Simon. There's a gentleman by the name of Albert Rosales. Uh, Albert has published a series of books that he's written about humanoid encounters. I mean, I think he's done five or six volumes. And I asked um, Albert if if he'd ever seen anything like that, you know, in his in his collection, and the answer was no. And I, like you, Simon, read a lot of books uh, and there is nothing like it anywhere as far as I'm aware. I mean, nothing. Uh, And that's just another unique aspect of the whole case. It really is. And I wanted to ask you about all the other witnesses that
1: you have in the book and uh, get on to Mr. and Mrs. Blair. But first Mm -hmm. of all, there was, was it Jerry Savile? And he says that he filmed it.
2: Jerry, Jerry, you know, saw, it was afterwards, Jerry saw the the story on the TV news. And, um, you know, there there was, like, I don't know what you'd call it, a bit of hysteria, if you like, that there was going to be another UFO sighting at a particular location. I think it was a couple of nights later. So Jerry and his wife, Jerry had actually, he knows the, the time period because he actually had his ankle in a pot. So he knows he knows when it was but they drove to this place and he says there were hundreds of people there and of course they were causing a bit of a, a nuisance um so the police moved them on and jerry said we we knew the area so we didn't go the main route back um we traveled down this other particular road and he said you know he was gone complete with his with his um his his camera his cine camera Eight millimeter, I think it was, and he said, "We we saw this thing for we saw it, and he filmed it." And um, he remembered how Charlie and Calvin on the television had been sort of ridiculed and laughed at, it. and he thought, well, no way, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm I'm going to do that." He spoke to what the other. There was like two TV channels. One took it serious, and one the other didn't. And he filmed the one that that um, took it serious, but didn't didn't get any feedback. Um, and he was anxious to see the film, you know. So he, he went to, a I think it was a relative's or a friend's house and they put it through the projector and unfortunately the film got stuck and it, and, and it melted. So the piece where he filmed this thing is, is gone forever. But he literally went to Calvin Parker's house with the film and uh, met Calvin and sat down and discussed it with him and did drawings of what he'd seen and things like that. And, um, you know, sent me the actual film there was nothing we could do, you know, but he sent it all but uh, nonetheless and um and it was fascinating I mean Jerry's still around he's he, as you say, he's featured in the book in fact he, I got a message from him a couple of days ago, and that was just one of the other events that in and around the chat and we know this is true because this event that was forecast was was also featured in in the newspaper, so we have it in the newspaper cuttings as well. And, um, you know, so it wasn't the actual event. It was a couple of nights later. And, uh, you know, that was nothing unusual at all, Simon. Nothing out of the ordinary. There were lots of people saw things. Lucky Land Casino,
0: asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You could get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: And I'd wonder about this craft and these ETs, because it seems like no one else has seen them before or since, and maybe... They are another race that's coming to this planet, and they were just shooting around, picking people up, because Mr. and Mrs. Blair had quite a, an extensive experience. They, they did. First of all, it was, was it just Mrs. Blair? They saw some lights and...
2: Yeah, but what happened, Simon, um, Calvin did a, a, a piece with a local journalist um, she's called Karen Nelson, she was fairly sceptical, so she came up and interviewed him, but she filmed it as well. So she made like a little eight-minute documentary, if you like, as well as writing a piece for the for her, the newspaper, and that went out. Uh, and at some point, somebody got that little eight minutes and put it on YouTube. And of course, there's all the comments underneath it. And I was I was scrolling through the comments. And one of the comments said, my mum and dad were on the opposite side of the river that night and they saw the UFO as well. So I jumped on that straight away. Uh, I found this person, a young lady, on um, Facebook, I believe it was. I contacted her to explain who I was and said, could we speak to your mum and dad? She says, well, I'll check first. She came back and said, yeah, my mum's... Uh, Mrs. Maria Blair, my dad's Mr. Jerry Blair. Here's their their phone number. So we rang them up, and I spoke to both Jerry and Maria. Uh, Jerry, you know, had very little to say. It was mainly Maria. And um, they were indeed on the opposite side of the river that night. Mr. Blair was going out on a boat. Uh, The boat he was on uh, actually supplied the oil rigs out in the Gulf and um he was waiting basically for his boss to come his boss was late so though were sat in the car he was in a bad mood he, he had a you know a bit of a sleep and maria's walking up and down the pier and she said she could see this blue light over the other side of the river she, she called it an airplane she said but it, it moved like no airplane you've ever seen it was going around haphazardly as if it didn't either it didn't know where it was going or if it was looking for something Jerry saw it as well. And then for whatever reason, they decided, well, we'll go up to the boat and we'll put his belongings on the boat, irrespective. As they're walking down the pier, there's a huge splash in the water next to her. And and Mrs Blair said, there's this gray man in the water. That's one of her words. She said, gray man. And he said, he went under the water and never came back up. So she ran like hell and threw Jerry's stuff on, onto the boat. Now, this was about nine o'clock, she estimated. Uh, they weren't there that long when she turned around terrified because she got to go back down this pier to get back to the car. And she got back to the car, it was midnight. And she couldn't understand why, you know, where these hours had gone. And Jerry went off to see, you know, he was gone a few days. And um, as she said to me on the phone, she said, I often wondered, if something didn't happen to us like it did Charlie and Kelvin. So I said, why do you say that, Maria? And she says, well, I've got little glimpses of something. You're almost like I'm looking out of my peripheral vision. I can't quite make it out. And she was uh, quite upset about it, you know, quite emotional, I should say. So what I did, I've been working with my colleague, Dr. Irina Scott in Ohio. I've published already three of her books so i asked uh dr scott if she'd come on board and help me with this um because it was just easier to have someone in america interview these people on the telephone rather than this strange sounding yorkshireman from across the atlantic you know and ringing at the wrong time as well i could never i could never get the time difference correct so she agreed so Dr. Scott, you know, continued to converse and contact and text uh, Maria for quite some time. Um, In 2019, the city of the the town of Pascagoula uh, unveiled a historical marker at the site of this incident, and Maria and Jerry Blair turned up, they met Calvin, they were interviewed by the local news, and she tells that story again and, and Jerry again doesn't say an awful lot, and um, but then not long after that, Jerry became ill, seriously ill, and he started to tell. He said he told Maria that they had been abducted, and he explained what had happened. He told her in some detail, and even though he was he was ill, Simon, she was mad as hell at him. You know, I think the words she used were, well, "You've got some damn talking to do." Uh, And he started to tell a bit by bit. He went into hospital for an operation uh, and he insisted on speaking to me from his hospital bed. And uh, on the mobile phone, I spoke to him and he said, I saw it, Philip, and I saw these creatures go back across the river. Um, He survived the operation. He even had his wife, Maria, film him on the the, uh, cell phone. And we have that piece of film um, as well. He survived the operation. Um, And, he, you know, he told Maria some more, but then sadly, you know, it was only a reprieve rather than a cure, and he, he passed away. So it was almost, Simon, like um, a deathbed confession. And, um, but again, you know, she was sad to lose. I mean, she grieved for her husband. She loved him dearly, did Maria. But she just wished he'd spoken up before. So... Maria mentioned the use of hypnosis. She knew um, Calvin and Charlie had been under hypnosis, and we declined. We said, you, you, you're a bit upset or you're losing your husband, uh, Maria. I don't think it's a good idea. So she said, okay. And then she left it and come back to us last year. And I said, well, I'll see what I can do. You know, I'm across the Atlantic. So I found a number of um, practitioners in the area and I found one lady who said, "Yeah, I can do hypnotic regression." And not only that, she would she would travel to a location as well, to your home or wherever. Um, so we organised it. You know, she was a professional, was not a stage hypnotist or anything like that. Uh, and we we had the um, hypnosis at Calvin Parker's house she, uh, because Maria knew Calvin, so he could reassure her. Calvin's wife was there, uh, and the. Um, the hypotherapist knew nothing about what we wanted to talk about, we didn't tell her anything. Uh, we gave her a date, a time, and a location, and that was it. Uh, and I know, you know, the use of hypnosis is a contentious uh, thing, but it's what Maria had requested, not us. And we filmed it as well. I, I hired a professional cameraman who lived nearby, and he came along and filmed it. So we have it on video as well. And again, Maria was very emotional. Under hypnosis, and um, she talked about what had happened, and uh, it wasn't out of her peripheral vision. What she'd actually done, she she'd got her eyes closed, and it was she was just opening her eyes a little bit. She was peeking out, and and she could see what was happening, but not in full, of course. But then she went on to say that these creatures were removing some of her eggs. They were interested in human DNA and they wanted to make children but children that could walk among us and not be recognized and and that, that was the you know the basis of the of the hypnosis session i mean that the look on the hypnotherapist's face when they start coming out simon he's a peach because she had no idea what to what we were talking about and afterwards again you know maria was very emotional about this uh, but she was okay uh, and a few weeks later we did the same with Calvin. We put him under hypnosis. He, he'd done it before, but it'd never been filmed, so we filmed it for posterity. Uh, and we have, you know, the full transcripts of both these hypnotic sessions, Simon, are in the book. And you know, we're not saying they are truth serums, we're not saying they're tapping to anybody's fantasy either. It's just make up your own mind, you know. Uh, it's just there. And uh, and and the, the thing about Calvin's hypnosis doesn't differ from what he told Paul Conscious, you know, right from the beginning. There's no, there's no additional bits added on, really, you know. And I asked Calvin, I said, you know, was there hypnosis of any use to you? And he says, not really, Philip. I could remember it all anyway, you know. He said it, it sharpened up a few little things, but he said, not really. So... And there you have it I, you know like, and it's an incredible story um, look, mr and mrs blair and the full everything is in the book from when we started talking to her the text messages that went between her and, and, and dr scott and so on it's all there it's all laid out you know in in order and um make of it what you will simon that, that's all we can say mrs
1: blair said was it that her husband made an agreement with the E.T.s that they would
2: remove her memory of everything? Yeah, he was. He, he said he he'd experienced this before. This wasn't his first encounter, and um, the reason he made the agreement like that, he was trying to protect his wife. And he said that's why he never told her what happened. He just wanted to protect her. He didn't want people walking around and saying they were nuts. And what is interesting, I went back to that comment on YouTube, and that was actually by Mrs. Blair's youngest daughter that made that comment. She says, You know, my mum and dad were on the opposite side of the river that night. They too saw the UFO, but she also put on, they were not abducted. So even at this point, their two daughters were not aware. Of what happened yes they knew they'd seen the, the the blue lights and things like that but nothing else even jerry hadn't um mr blair hadn't told his daughters both adults you know both grown up um so he, he definitely kept it to himself and like i said you know maria was was mad as hell at him it really as mad as hell despite him being ill um but we're thankful that they some people have said all oh, these people have stepped forward to get their 15 minutes of fame. Well, they didn't step forward. You know it was their daughter who made a little comment on a YouTube broadcast, and I happened to read it. You know I I not read it? because on this, on this you know, video, there was, was hundreds and hundreds of comments on it, Simon. And, um, and I just happened to see this one by, by um, the Blair's daughter. Uh, and, and act upon it. So it learnt me a lesson. Even though there's hundreds, try and, try and go through them all, Philip. Like you never know what you might find. Uh, and it's a fascinating story, I mean, you know, and you can make of it what you will. And was it a kind
1: of mini flap in that area?
2: Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, not, not just in that area. There was a, a huge flap across the United States in 1973. Uh, a chap called Walter Webb Uh, wrote um, like a homemade uh, book about it. And he called it, you know, 1973, the year of the humanoids. Uh, On October the 1st of this year, um, American uh, researcher and author Kevin Randall has a new book out that I'm publishing. And it's again, it's called 1973, you know, the year of UFO sightings, landings and abductions. And Calman's going to look at some of the other things that happened in 1973. And, and there were, you know, for whatever reason, Simon, the 1970s in particular is the, is the decade where you get the most, what we term as high strangeness accounts. You know, humanoids, landings, strange creatures. Not that they haven't happened since, but not in that profusion. That was the decade for them. Not, and again, not just in, in the States, you know, in different parts of the world also, including here in the UK. Why that is? I have no idea. But it seemed that whatever happened in pascagoula in nineteen seventy-three, that was kind of the the peak of the wave that year. You know, there was things building up to it beforehand and then they faded off afterwards. So there was indeed a huge flap across the United States.
1: There's a timeline there and why isn't there? Because we know that what happened to Calvin Parker and Charles that that happened at one point in the evening. And then we know that what happened to the Blairs happened at about 10 or 11 in the evening. But have you looked at other sightings and sort of put a, a full timeline together? This happened at six, that happened at seven.
2: We, we've not done that, no, because you know a lot of people are not... I mean, like Charlie and Calvin didn't wear a watch. And even, sadly, Calvin passed away on, on August the 24th of this year. Uh, and even up until the day he died, he never wore a watch. And so when asked what time this thing happened, they can only give you a a rough estimate. And um, because neither of them had a watch on. I I don't think the Blairs did either, to be be fair. And I'll give you another example, A, a gentleman who we interviewed. One of the criticisms back in 1973, and for a long time after, like I said, there's this huge bridge goes over the river. It's a toll bridge, so it has a toll booth on it. The toll the toll booth operators saw nothing, and people said, Well, surely somebody driving over the bridge would see something because where Charlie and Calvin were is literally down by the bridge, is you know. And um, a gentleman stepped forward, he's he, he's called Charles Anderson, and he said, Well, I, I was actually driving over the bridge that night with my wife that they've been visiting someone, and he said. I could see this thing down below me, this white blue thing. He called it an aircraft. He didn't know what else to call it. He said, but it was so low, Philip. He said, I thought it was going to crash. And he said, I think it was on the next day or the day after he went to visit a relative who lives down by the river. They said to him, you know, words to the effect, you never guess what I saw the other night. And he says, oh yes, I will. Because <laughs> he'd seen it. But again, there's no accurate, you know, exact time. It gives us a rough time, but it's not exact. And Calvin was doing a, uh, a book signing at one point in Pasquodula and a gentleman came up, can I buy a book Mr. Mister Parker? Yeah, sure. And he, as he's walking away he's, you know, he said, um, I saw the UFO that night. And he said hello to Calvin's wife and he was gone. Uh, but fortunate for us, Simon, somebody was taking photographs, and we have a picture of him buying the book and talking to Wayne Calvin's wife. So I, I put that photograph on social media and said, anybody know this gentleman? Didn't say why. So I'd just like to speak to him. And I got a private message saying, yeah, I, I know who it is, um, I'll ask if he'll speak to you. And he agreed. And his name was Mr. Louis Lee. and. Uh, <clears throat> He was actually working in the shipyard on the other side of the uh, river that night. He was a crane operator. And he said, Philip, my, my cab is about 10 or 12 feet off the ground, and He says, when you get in it, obviously you have a fantastic view of everything around you. And he said, I looked out across the river and he said, the damnedest thing you've ever seen. I've never seen anything like it, you know? And he watched it for, a, for a, a good while, Simon. I'm talking minutes, not seconds. And the only reason he took his, his eyes off it, because his friend, colleague down below, was shouting at him, you know, what the hell are you doing? And he says, when, it, when he finished and turned back, this thing had gone. And uh, so we interviewed Mr. Leake uh, you know, on the phone. I spoke to him first. And then Irina interviewed him. It, sadly, he's since passed away. Uh, but his his testimony is in the book, along with some photographs of him. Uh, and I said to Mr. Lee, did you tell anybody about this? He said, Well, I just told my family. You know, and we spoke to his wife as well on the phone. She said, Yeah, he just told us. I said, Did you report it to anyone? He says, Who the hell am I going to report it to Philip? You know, there's no Ghostbusters to rig, <laughs> you know. And he said, No, I didn't. But I said I didn't keep a secret of it, but uh, and it was just by coincidence that he, he made that little comment to to, to Calvin and buying his book, and we managed to track him down. Uh, and that's that you know that's the other side of the river again, uh, and it's just one of many many witnesses that we've interviewed.
1: Now, Was there a thing where Calvin Parker says he saw the Blair's
2: red Pontiac? He thought he did initially when they're driving into the. Into the fishing spot, they passed a car parked up, and it had a you know two people in here, a man and a woman—and uh, it was this red car. And like you said, so initially they thought they were on the same pier as as the as the Blairs, and thought could that could that have been Mister and Missus Blair? But when it all turned out, you know, it's the same river, but you know, there's the east and the west side. They turned out they were on the other side of the river. One of the things that is not in the book, because we can't verify it, it's a a story that that Calvin told me. And to me, this shows the the measure of the man. He said, I could remember that car, Philip, the make, the model. And he said, the tag on the number plate, the tag donates which, um, which state it's from. But I couldn't remember the license plate. It's okay. So in 1993, Calvin had another uh, encounter, shall we say. And a friend of his persuaded him to go with him to Florida to a UFO convention, because Bud Hopkins was speaking there. Bud, of course, known for his work in this in this field of abductions. His friend went in, spoke to Bud, but says, here's the key to my uh, hotel room. I'll meet you there. So he met Calvin there and put him under regressive hypnosis. And our bud, he's no longer with us. He passed away some years back, but his archive of material is with another researcher in the States called Dr. David Jacobs. We got in touch with David Jacobs. You know, do you happen to have that tape of that session? Well, he did. And of course, under that session of hypnosis with... um, with bud hopkins calvin remembered the license plate number of the car and that you know it's in a previous book we published so what he did he said he hired somebody to try and find out the owners of that particular car 20 years earlier and they did they found them the man in the car had passed away and the lady was still around but she was ill she was in a nursing home uh, and she only agreed to speak to Calvin on one condition, and that was, you know, she didn't tell anyone who she was. So Calvin agreed, and she, this lady said, "Yeah, we saw the UFO take off." Uh, and Calvin wouldn't tell me who this lady was. He he'd given his word that he would not reveal her identity or the nursing home she was in. So we left it at that. But initially, they thought it might have been the Blairs. Just got the 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 banks of the river mixed up you know in in fact it might have been me that got the banks of the river mixed up because i don't know one side of it from the other but it it was an initial thought that but once they looked at it they thought no it can't be and then calvin told us the story of well you know I, i tracked down this this other lady um so you know it's another intriguing aspect to the story
0: More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Yeah, and another one is that thing with the fisherman and the underwater object. Oh, yeah. And one of the fishermen
2: was whacking it with one of his oars. Well, yeah. I mean, some people say this is not connected to what happened to Charlie and Calvin. And they may be right. I don't know. But so just a few weeks later, on November the 6th, I believe it was, in the same part of the river, just a little bit further out, where the water's a little bit deeper, now there were three little boats went out that night, three little skiffs, two families in three boats. And they were fishing for mullet, I believe it was, with a net. And they saw this thing under the water. It was circular, maybe 30 feet in diameter. It was illuminated. It looked about a bit off-white, but they reckon that was because of the the material that's in in the the river. Uh, And it was segmented, a bit like they they described it as an old uh, parachute. You know, old parachutes to have segments in them. And they got close enough to get a big oar off the boat and hit it. And it went clunk. The lights went out. It appeared elsewhere in in the water. So they'd chase it again and it'd move again. So they played cat and mouse for, I don't know, half an hour or more. And then they went in person to the nearby Coast Guard station and reported it the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard sent a boat out. They too saw it. And they, too, hit it with an O oh, and it went clunk again. Um, there was a report submitted. Um, we have all the documentation on that in full in the book, including, all, again, all the names of people involved. Um, the Navy came out, interviewed the witnesses, uh, even took a photograph of the witnesses lined up on the quayside. There was supposed to be a Navy, Navy report, but we've never been able to find it. Um, so we got uh, somebody, one of our colleagues said, oh, Philip, so-and-so's got, a, I think he's got a picture of all those witnesses. So I contacted him and he said, yeah, he sent me a, you know, a color photograph. I think there's eight of them. And they're all lined up on the quayside and on the back of the photograph is their names and their age. So again, using social media, we posted the photograph. Anybody knows these people? Uh, a lady contacted me, she says, I, 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 did, I did know them all, they're all dead, apart from one. And I think she said, without checking, he was a family relative, I think an in-law of some kind. I said, well, can we speak to him? Come back? Yeah, absolutely. His name was Earl Ryan. He was only a teenager at the time, uh, but he was in the boat that night on his with his father. And um, within a couple of days, Irina Scott, Dr. Scott, had him on the phone and interviewed him. And he said, yeah, they, they did send the Navy guy out. And he, he wanted us to show him where it happened. He, said, he thought we were a bit of an idiot, to be honest, because there's nothing there. <laughs> it's just the water. It's just the river. You know, but he showed him anyway. And... Um, and, he, you know, he, he went over the incident again in full uh, when interviewed by Irina. And again, it's all in the book with some artwork. And, but all the Coast Guard documents are there again in full. There's nothing redacted. Um, it does mention that the um, when the, when they were interviewed, all the witnesses were interviewed, it was on tape, but we've never been able to locate the tape. Uh, but again, it's, it's a fascinating incident in its own right, uh, and it's in the book in full with all the documents and the photos of these people. And again, Simon, you know, people can make of it what they will, but it, it, a fascinating event, quite honestly, really is.
1: Yeah, it's such a peculiar thing because it's clearly not natural. It's artificial. Something Somebody's constructed it, and it was obviously intelligently controlled. But at the well, same the, time,
2: what, what was it doing there? Well, I don't know, but in these documents from uh, the, the, the Department of Navy or something or other, it says in there that the object remains unidentified, you know? And people have speculated it might have been a Russian spying on the shipbuilding because they built military vessels on, on, on the river out there and things like that. You now, how the hell would a Soviet thing get all that way? Well, why would it show itself? You know, if you're spying on your enemy, you don't suddenly light up under the water, do you? You don't say, oh, we're here. You You know, I don't know what it was. And and at that point in time, neither did the the Coast Guard or the Navy. And um, whether the Navy Navy report uh, exists, I don't know. I've I've written to the Navy, I've written to the Coast Guard, and we just went round in circles getting nowhere. Um, but, again, it's, it, everything we have on that is there in full. And, you know, it made the newspapers as well at the time, the local newspapers. So it was a couple of newspaper cuttings just to show that this is not he said, she said. It did happen. And, I, I, you know, it leaves you scratching your head. It's such
1: a, a weird thing. And the good thing about it is there are so many witnesses because so often it's just one person reporting it, and that can be quite unreliable.
2: Well what you know one of the things we've we've not said in the book, but we've talked about it I mean, you think about the other most famous abduction cases, Betty and Barney Hill, well it was several years after the event before they went under hypnosis, and pretty much all of their testimony depends on the hypnosis you know there's no other independent witnesses, there's not you know nothing like that, same with. Travis Walton in 1975, I believe. His colleagues in in the truck that night, as as they're coming on after after working in the forest all day, say they saw the UFO and the beam hitting. But that's it. There's there's nothing else. You know, Calvin turns up five days later, uh, and there's no independent eyewitnesses. There's there's nothing to support the story. Uh, I'm not saying he's lying. I'm not saying you know anything of that nature. Quite the opposite. But here we have. An incident where two men, you know, uh, are in the sheriff's office within hours of this thing happening, telling the sheriff what's happened, being secretly recorded. The next day, they're at a, a United States Air Force base, discussing it, Dr. Alan Hynek, the man who invented the phrase "close encounter," is on site, and he leaves and said that they're, they're the, the real deal. And Alan Hynek and, and Charlie and Calvin kept in touch down the years. In fact, Calvin was a good friend of Dr. Hynek's uh, son, Paul Hynek. And Paul remembers as, as, a, as a, a youngster, you know, Calvin ringing the house. And um, apparently, they used to have a blackboard next to the telephone, and it was their job to write the messages for their father on the on the blackboard, you know. And Calvin would say, "Go get your dad." He says, "Not in." Well, I know he is." "Go get him." "Tell him it's Calvin back." You know, and, uh, and and Dr. Heineck talked about the case on and off down the years. And it's alleged, and we can't prove this, it's only an alleged that it was his favorite case. Um, so, it's, whatever way, it certainly made an impression on him. Of that, there is no doubt. Because um, we have interviews online with, with Heineck talking about the case, he, he, and he, he always believed them.
1: Yeah, you've. Got a lot of detail in this book. It's it's very well covered, and we have talked about a lot in this podcast. But there's so much more in the book. So if people are interested, they they should really get this book and get the detail.
2: Well, you know, we we've, we've made the book available in his, as many different formats as we can. Simon, so, mean, you know, a, you can buy a six by nine paperback, ten by eight paperback, a, you know, a huge great uh, hardback, Kindle audio book, because we are, we are aware of the economic uh, conditions around the world. So, you know, hopefully if, if somebody wants to buy the book, there's something there that's affordable for them, you know, we don't care about the money, to be honest, you know, the commercial side of it, we just want to, you know, to tell people what happened that night or over those few nights, you know, it's, it's not just one night and it's not just Charlie and Calvin. There's a much bigger story there. Um, and what we can say is, Simon, uh, Dr. Scott and I uh, have been working on a documentary with a, uh, a, a British uh, mm-hmm. documentary company, and uh, it's all done, it's all filmed. They were out in the States last year, and they have interviewed, I would say, 13 to 15 people. And which of those have made into the documentary is a different matter but that should be out it's all finished It's, it's being edited as we speak and that should be out later this year and um, once we have the information you know we'll, we'll let everybody know we have no control over that we, we, we've we just been involved in it uh, and that again uh, from from what the production company tell me they've no doubt about Calvin and his story um, so they're, they're making it a bit like a whodunit Not did this happen or not, of course it happened, but, you know, what happened? So I can't wait to see it, to be honest. I I cannot wait to see it. And, um, again, Simon will tell you when it's available as well. We'll let as many people know as we can. And I've said, you know, I'm I'm still a UFO person, Simon. I still buy UFO books. In fact, I got one this week, you know. My wife says, where the hell are you going to put that? Cause my bookshelves are full. I yeah. don't worry about that, darling. You know, but um, so I, my saying is if you're if you if you're only going to buy one UFO book this year, my advice, go, and I know I'm biased, my advice would be, it's our book, Beyond Reasonable Doubt, the Pascagoula Alien Abduction. You will not be disappointed. I'm not saying you'll agree with everything, but you'll not be disappointed. And as you know yourself, Simon, it's heavily illustrated with photographs, documents, newspaper cuttings. It's all there. And you can, we've said beyond reasonable doubt because I was watching a um, courtroom drama one night and they said, oh, we've got to prove this beyond reasonable doubt. And I went, bingo. And I emailed hiring, and I said, I've got a title for the book. And we say right at the end, and we've already been criticised for this, but I don't care, that we believe that if we could take all this evidence and all these witnesses into a courtroom, we could prove beyond reasonable doubt that something extraordinary happened that night. We can't prove it was aliens or anything else for that matter. And, um, and we're confident of that. And, you know, that's where we leave it. We'll leave it there, yeah. You know, and um, we had a working title for the book, but that that ended. And happiness uh, is great, so that's why it's called Beyond Reasonable Doubt. And uh, you can view all the evidence yourself and 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 see whether or not you agree with us. Uh, is it, that simple, Simon? Well,
1: I'll put links to the book in the show notes so people can get to it quickly. I'll put a link to your website as well, Flying Disc Press. Please do. And thanks again for coming on the podcast. It's been fascinating.
2: Uh, it's my, my pleasure, Simon. Any time, you know. And I dare say at some point we'll speak again.
1: Yeah. And that was an interview with Philip Mantle about his book, Beyond Reasonable Doubt, The Pascagoula Alien Abduction. And a great way to support the podcast is to sign up to Patreon, where you can hear the extended episode of this episode, which is an extra 20 minutes. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Podcast. If you join the $2 a month tier, you get an extended episode every month. And if you join the $5 a month tier, you'll have access to an extended episode every week. And when you sign up, you get access to the episodes in the back catalogue. And they are ad-free and are released two days before the free versions. And please check out my other podcast. It's called Past Lives Podcast. There are over 280 episodes. On the Past Lives podcast, I look into evidence of the afterlife, such as near-death experiences, children with past life memories, mediumship, deathbed visions and other phenomena. And I also release an extra episode of Past Lives podcast every Thursday and that's called Paranormal Stories and that almost always has UFO stuff in it. My website is pastliveshypnosis.co.uk and the link is in the show notes. In my work as a clinical hypnotherapist, I take people through past life regression. And when you book a past life regression hypnosis session with me and you've signed up to Patreon, you get a 25% discount. And I'm offering a free consultation call, which can be booked on my website. My Instagram is the Past Lives Podcast with an underscore between each word. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or via your favorite podcast app to make sure that you don't miss out on any episodes. And there's pictures of puncture wounds on the two guys, isn't there? And I think there's a su- suggestion that this was like they were getting some kind of injections to calm them down, and the aliens
2: touched them. Well, if you think back to what Charles Hickson said, when these two creatures got hold of him, he felt some kind of prick in his arm. Calvin, when he was on board this thing, said they removed his shoes and socks and stuck something in his foot.